All right, so let's say that Jen, my wife, and I go out for dinner one night, and we let Amelia, my oldest daughter, babysit, and as a precaution, I leave my brand new S8 Plus, Samsung S8 Plus, very frosty phone, by the way, uh, behind, just in case the children need it for an emergency, and I say to them, now, here, children, here's my phone, um, in case of an emergency. Jen and I go out for dinner. We come back, and to my shock and dismay, my children have dismantled my Galaxy S8 and tried to fashion it into a mousetrap because they saw a big rat in the house and they got really scared. And when I question them about it, they say, But Dad, instead, in case of an emergency, we should use the phone. <laughs> okay? Um... And uh, I try to explain to them, children, a phone is not meant to be dismantled and turned into a mousetrap in case you see a rat or something in the house. In fact, you could use the phone in a number of other ways uh, that would have been more effective to solve the problem of your uh, rodent dilemma here. Fashioning my uh, brand new cell phone into a rat trap is not what I had in mind when I said use it in case of an emergency. Now, I bring up that illustration to try to illustrate once again and bring us back into focus on how postmodern deconstructionism works. You take something that is put together and built for specific purposes, like Googling, where can we buy rat traps? Or just calling Dad and saying, Dad, there's a gigantic rat in the house and we're really scared and we think you guys should come home or something of that nature. Might have ruined the, di- the dinner out with Jen, uh, but wouldn't have ruined my, uh, my cell phone. In postmodern deconstruction, that's precisely what happens, particularly with Holy Scripture. People take Holy Scripture, and instead of using it as the authority to describe what is true and right and beautiful and the way things are supposed to be, They dismantle it and try to refashion it into something that works for their latest emergency. And again, we're going to go back to Willie Parker this week. We're going to finish up reviewing the last chapter of his book, A New Theology of Abortion, where that's precisely what happens, where he dismantles Holy Scripture in an effort to still be able to call himself a Christian at the end of all this, in order to solve an immediate problem, which are people which are people having unwanted pregnancies, and ha- he's reconstructed it in such a way. And again, remember the all the whole process of the postmodern deconstruction reconstruction idea goes like this: you take the ideas of old, you question them. You take away, you take apart the ideas of old, examine them, find out which parts of them will serve your purposes, like the children taking apart my phone to turn it into a rat trap. They find the pieces that might do well to serve as a rat trap. They keep those, they discard the others, and then they get together and decide, hey, this is going to work, the community piece, and then what has been determined that's going to solve an immediate problem or a modern problem or a modern crisis 
is then promulgated as provisional convention, provisional truth. This is what's going to work for now, and this is what we should do. And so in my little analogy there, um, they've taken something that was built and put together for very specific purposes in a very specific way using very specific technology that has very specific instructions. They've taken it and they've dismantled that beautiful thing and they've turned it into something to solve an immediate problem and it turned out to be something very, very ugly. And at the end of the day, I can't imagine how you would turn a cell phone into a rat trap. Equally, I cannot imagine how you can take Holy Scripture and turn it into a case for making abortion a moral good. But it goes to show you just how blatantly and obviously postmodern theology, philosophy, deconstruction, how it doesn't work. At the end of the day, it's a dead end. Just as surely as my children could not turn my cell phone into a rat trap, you cannot turn Holy Scripture into something that supports abortion as a moral good. It doesn't work. And at the end of the day, it's not only are there all kinds of logical flaws along the ways and inconsistencies, existentially, this is not the, this is not the only option to unwanted pregnancies. There are a number of solutions to the problem. But yet, here we have a man who has come to a point in his life where he believes that the only solution for impoverished and minority women to have a chance in this world is to be able to, at will, get rid of unwanted pregnancies. That's his solution to the problem. Now, I may make some arguments against abortion throughout this, but that's really not my aim. My aim here, rather, is to demonstrate to you how postmodern deconstruction works and how it can end up in some really, really awful places. Because at the end of the day, it has the fatal flaw of who gets to decide what is good and true and right and beautiful. And the way who gets to decide the way things should be. Who has that ultimate authority? And the postmodernists would say the community. And to that I say, nay, nay. How can the community have that authority? And when it comes to abortion, I'm not afraid to appeal to Nazism. The community had that authority then, and see how that turned out. And they based that on... You heard, um, perhaps... I don't know if it was in the last podcast or if it's going to come up in this one. I think it was the last one. It was. Where Parker lists off this litany of philosophers. You know the national origin of most of those philosophers? German. Most of them were German, if not all of them. And Nazism was based on this nihilistic, atheistic philosophy that we now call postmodernism. And you saw that you see the results. And now, as you as Christians, those of you who are Christians out there, I would hope some people who aren't Christians are listening to this and find it interesting, but those of you who are Christians out there know that from the scriptures we can argue against the taking of babies in the womb and murdering them. That this is immoral according to the scriptures. But yet, what happens is 
in very sometimes crass ways, but also in very clever and shrewd ways. Even Parker here takes words that used to mean one thing, changes the definition of the terms, and then argues from that premise. Now, that's something you need to learn how to recognize. You need to learn how to recognize when somebody is arguing for a point, if they are changing the definition of the terms, and you need to call them on that. Parker is taking a term, abortion, which used to mean murdering babies in the womb before 1972, and he's changing the definition of it based on what he would say is science. All while, and again, this may be my argument against his case, I mean, because really abortion boils down to one central piece. What is the unborn? Are they human beings or are they not human beings? And we turn to science to get those answers. And quite honestly, Dr. Parkey honestly is a little behind the, behind the curve on this one. Because many of his colleagues who support abortion have finally come to the conclusion that it is a life. But it is not a life that's worth as much as the mother's autonomy. Really is what the argument has come down to in a lot of circles. And they make the all, all kinds of arguments for that. But Dr. Parker has none of that. He has no time for that. To him, when life begins is a very gray area. And at conception is definitely not the place where life begins for him. And so, informally, he's got a problem there because he doesn't know for sure if life, where life begins. And, but, he makes the, but he makes the argument from these premises. Again, I'm not trying to refute his arguments for or against abortion per se. What I'm trying to show you is how people can pretty much take anything they want using postmodern deconstructionism and make it say what they want it to say and still put whatever label they want to put on it. That's what goes on. They turn the cell phone into a rat trap that doesn't work that ends in disaster with an angry father and something that was once good and true and beautiful and ordered and right it turns it into something ugly and destructive and murderous that's where this sort of thing leads and that's why it's dangerous we're going to cover Rob Bell next week and he's a lot uh, less venomous I guess I should say he doesn't discuss serious topics like this. He's talking about the Bible, but he's using the same philosophy, the same thought process to come to his conclusions. And as long as men are using these thought processes, same thing with, uh, with uh, William Paul Young in the shack, same thought process. These thought processes get, get you to dangerous places. And what I have found fascinating in my own anecdotal experience with these matters is these people who take you to these dangerous places and they say, okay, go ahead and live that way. Don't realize what kind of potential damage that, that can inflict on people who start to think this way. When people start to actually live out this belief system. And the funny thing of it is, most of them don't live out these belief systems. Rob Bell has been married to the same woman, and I think they have children, and he's basically, you know... If you didn't know any better um, from his theology, would think that he 
makes it a practice of his life to follow the Ten Commandments. But yet, I would venture to guess that the Ten Commandments don't really even come into play with him in a lot of ways. So these people follow the natural law, for the most part. It's not this malleable thing in reality to them. They actually live their lives in a way that's in accord with natural law, that's in accord with the Ten Commandments, but yet they promulgate a philosophy and a theology that discourages that, that says go against that, that says play with that, that says toy with it, turn the cell phone into a rat trap. And then when people do it, and they have these incredibly destructive lives, uh, you know, there's, there's not much accounting for that from their perspective. So at any rate, uh, there's, it's a mess, certainly a mess, but I want you to see the process. So when you, when you see somebody reasoning this way, you can call them out on it. And again, the, sur- the, su- the silver bullet is how do you know that? On what authority do you get to change the definition of the terms? Why should we listen to you? That's really their problem. They cannot argue from uh, an, uh, an absolute source of authority. They try to name the community, but that doesn't work. Why should we believe them? Why should we trust them? Because they say so? That doesn't work. How? We've got to have something uh, that's more absolute than that. And that's why I think it's critical that we have some place we can locate God's voice. And that is Holy Scripture. And friends, to the postmodern theologian, Holy Scripture is not the locus for God's voice. It's not. It's found someplace else. And that's why postmodern theology is so unwieldy. Because I think a lot of times they're trying to locate God's voice in all kinds of other places other than where God said his voice would be located. And that's what we talked about last week. And I just wanted to recap all that, re-illustrate it, and kind of you know, bring it back to center here. And as well, remind you that Dr. Parker here is arguing against a false form of Christianity. He grew up a Pentecostal. And again, I don't know if it was a holiness tradition, oneness tradition, what it was, uh, but it w- it is not the proper articulation. It's not the scriptural articulation of Holy Scripture. And he's reacting against that, thinking that that's what Christianity is and has historically been. And the simple fact of the matter is, is it's not. And that's what shows you another thing. I mean, there's a lot revealed here. We're seeing how dangerous postmodern theology and philosophy is, we're seeing how dangerous false teaching is. Because false teaching tends to beget false teaching until you finally figure out, wait a second, (laughs) I've got to find out where the truth is. And it's not here and it's not here. Where is it? Because it's not in the false forms of Christianity. A lot of, you know, that are the most popular in the United States, it's not there. But nor is it in this postmodern manner, construct, paradigm that is currently being promulgated. It's not there either. That's not the answer. That's not the move, right? So we're going to kind of freely critique this thing. I'm going to try to point out where this stuff's going on again to help you recognize it, to see, okay, Where's this guy in the steps of deconstructing Holy Scripture and reconstructing it in a way that suits his current 
crisis or problem or situation. Um, if you go to the Federalist um, and just search for me as a contributor there, Matthew Garnett, you'll see I wrote an article on this. And, uh, and there I talk about how religion or philosophy tends to identify a, a problem. And then it tries to create a solution to that problem. Well, Holy Scripture has identified the problem and given us the solution, as we know. But according to Willie Parker, that problem is different than what Holy Scripture identifies it as, and he's got a completely different solution. Why should we trust his analysis of it? Anyway, wow. By the way, I guess I should tell you who I am and what you're listening to. This is in layman's terms, Matthew Garnett here. Check us out at laymanstermsradio.org, facebook.com forward slash laymanstermsradio. Contact us there. Send me a friend request, Matthew Garnett. Send me a PM or on Facebook or uh, send me an email at discussion at laymanstermsradio.org. Oh, also, before I forget, uh, Fred, Fred Ancho and Kenyan Christian Arts, they've got some price-reduced art there. There's, their art is, is very beautiful, and it's expensive. It's This stuff's not cheap to make, and they have to ship, ship it. But Fred's figured out some ways uh, to reduce some of the prices on some of that beautiful stuff. So I would go check that out at KenyanChristianArts.com. And he's got a donate uh, uh, button right on right on the front page. If you, know, if you don't want to uh, buy art, you can just donate to him. And uh, th- I think that will help them out uh, greatly. He and I were chatting about that yesterday. So um, check him out at Kenyan Christian Arts. Anyway, there's all the housekeeping stuff. And uh, let's, yeah, let's get to the last of this. Willie Parker chapter in his book, uh, Life's Work, the last chapter called A New Theology of Abortion. Humane theology was the foundation of Dr. George Tiller's practice. It dictates that alleviating needless suffering is a Christian sacred responsibility. If God is in everything and everyone, then God is as much in the woman making a decision to terminate a pregnancy as in her Bible. The sacred, Davis writes in his book, Sacred Work, Planned Parenthood and its Clergy Alliances, is more often revealed not in abstract pronouncements, but in the experience of human beings trying to deal with the iniquities and tragedies of human life. These brave and righteous religious leaders for reproductive rights, warriors really, have been so widely ignored for decades by the public and the press. As far back as 1967, when abortion was still illegal in New York State, the Reverend Howard Moody of Judson Memorial Church in New York City formed the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion, a kind of underground railroad coalition of Jewish and Christian clerics committed to helping women procure safe abortion care. They were motivated, Reverend Moody said, by their humane concern for the women who were forced to risk their lives navigating the underworld of illegal abortion on their own. Okay, so you see him changing the definition of the terms here already. He's equating illegal abortion activity to the Underground Railroad. That women who had unwanted pregnancies were forced to procure abortions or face slavery. So he's changing a couple of terms here. One he is he's 
identifying illegal abortion in the 1960s as something akin to the Underground Railroad. He's also saying that slavery and being pregnant are the same thing. See what's going on here? He's very, in, in many ways, crassly drawing you into this argument. But if you didn't know what was going on, it would just make you mad. You would just be like, that's ridiculous that he's equating those those two things. And you, you would be right. It is ridiculous. But why is it ridiculous? It's ridiculous because being pregnant is not the same thing as being a slave. It is not. I would venture to say. And if Dr. Parker is so... Um, enamored by the civil rights movement and, and the abolition of slavery, he's actually degrading that to put it on par, to put abortion, illegal abortion, on par with what went on in the Underground Railroad and with the abolition of slavery. He's actually undermining that whole notion, the whole notion of genuine civil rights and equating pregnancy with being a slave. That's why it's ridiculous. It's a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. It doesn't make sense to say that a woman getting pregnant accidentally is on par with being a slave. Th- those two things don't follow. They don't make sense. But yet, he's he's actually... He's, he's doing a number of things here. It's a non-sequitur, but he's also making, a, making an appeal to emotion here. To say that if these women who need abortions, and you know that's a really interesting way to put it, that somebody needs an abortion, just as surely as somebody needs to be uh, freed from slave labor, it's interesting, at best. And when this is thought about rationally, it just doesn't compute. It's a non-sequitur. It just doesn't follow. That giving women safe legal abortions is on par with freeing slaves. Like the Good Samaritan, the ministers assumed the legal risk on behalf of women because their faith compelled them to provide succor to a population they saw as persecuted and vulnerable. So, again, here's where he's turning my cell phone into a rat trap. He's taking a very beautiful portion of scripture, the Good Samaritan, where a man was felled by robbers, bleeding and dying in a ditch, and equating that to women who have unwanted pregnancies, and saying that to help women with unwanted pregnancies procure safe but illegal abortions at that time, he's talking about the 1960s, is the same thing as helping the Good Samaritan. Interesting. See how he's turning my cell phone into a rat trap? See how he's turning Holy Scripture, a portion of which is is absolutely beautiful, and and a description of what our Lord does for us in forgiving our sins and rescuing us from the ditch we're in into something that is ugly and murderous and disordered. And by the way, let's not forget, he's talking about the 1960s. What was going on in the 1960s? The sexual revolution began then. 
and and really this outburst of free love. And, and really, what was that a reaction against? Let's 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 keep this in mind as well. What what was the reaction of the 1960s against? It was against false versions of Christianity. Now, I those false versions of Christianity can have some culpability, to be sure. The fundamentalism that was going on there, the all law and no gospel preaching that was happening with these people where Christianity was this uh, oppressive stranglehold on them. It didn't it didn't free them. It didn't give them the power to obey the commands of Scripture. They might have been reacting against that. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. The point is, in the 60s, what was going on was this whole free love movement. And people were getting pregnant unintentionally. And so therefore, for whatever reason, they felt they needed abortions. This is when all this started. And so, instead of the clergy and the church stepping in and saying how can we compassionately deal with this and not yet and yet not violate what the, one of the commands of scripture namely you shall not murder they decided well the best way to deal with it is just to go ahead and murder again the answer to maybe a, an oppressive or or a um, a toxic religious situation is not to abandon the answers to those questions, which is namely the right understanding of Holy Scripture and how to deal with these things. The right answer is to go back to the Holy Scriptures and say, okay, where where have we gone wrong that has resulted in this, and now how can we solve this problem according to the Holy Scriptures? Because, friends, not one place in Holy Scripture will you find the answer to a, to an unwanted pregnancy to abort that pregnancy. You will not find that in Holy Scripture. That's not the solution it offers. There are a number of solutions that the Holy Scripture offers, but abortion is not one of them. And sadly, instead of going back to the Holy Scriptures and saying, what, as clergy as Dr. Parker mentioned, instead of going back there and, and saying, what, what solutions to this problem do the Scriptures offer? They abandon the Scriptures, taking only parts of them that serve their purposes, or they could twist in the, into their purposes, and going a completely different route than the Scriptures went. That's not the move. When you're confronted with a problem the answer is to go back to the authority not to become a, an authority in and of yourself we talked about this last time and that's what's going on here anyway what i wanted to point out there was primarily the 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 account the pericope of the of the good samaritan is a beautiful passage beautiful gospel passage and dr parker has taken that beautiful passage and and wrecked it and used it to support abortion rights. That passage is not... um, That's not what that passage teaches. It does teach compassion, to be sure. And women who find themselves 
in a situation where they have an unwanted pregnancy should be treated with compassion. There's no question about that. That is something that I would agree with Dr. Parker that sometimes Christians lack when approaching this subject. We, we, we don't lack the, a proper measure of compassion uh, on some, uh, on, in many ways. Um, and unfortunately, the way we mishandle these crises are the ones that get advertised the most loudly. I mean, these are the ones that Dr. Parker sees all the time that, you know, people protesting abortion clinics, you know, improperly name calling these sorts of things. This is not how the scriptures teach us to deal with these matters. And Dr. Parker cites a number of those, and those are very unfortunate. But the response to that is not to assume that 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 person calling him the N-word, calling him an N-word baby killer, that's one thing he cites. The response to that is not to assume that that, that that the Bible has taught that person to behave that way. The response is to go go back to the Bible and say, how does the Bible teach us to deal with these situations? Okay? So again, there's, there's, a, there's an, ab- an abandonment of, a, of authority here, of objective truth, because of people's misuse of the source of that objective truth, which is the Bible. People misuse the Bible all the times on both sides. And the reaction, the, 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 what we should do is not react to those things. We talked about this last time. We shouted each other over the fence, but to go back and consult that source of authority. Anyway. An estimated 450,000 women called on the clergy consultation service for help in the six years before Roe, and the coalition, which started with 21 members, grew to 2,000. Activism by Moody's group helped propel New York's legislature to legalize abortion in 1970, the first state in the nation to do so. Emboldened by its success, the Clergy Consultation Service then began to help women from other states travel to New York to obtain safe and legal abortions. And then, breaking with the medical establishment, these same clerics proposed the model for the first abortion clinic. Believing that women's privacy and autonomy would be better served if they could get their abortion care in a freestanding clinic instead of a hospital, Moody's group worked with a doctor committed to providing low-cost, quality care, humane treatment, and a willingness to serve the poor in a freestanding place. Women's Services on Manhattan's Upper East Side was the first abortion clinic in the country. Then, in 1973, when Roe came under attack by Catholic and conservative Christian groups, an activist Christian group rose up in opposition. The Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice has fought tirelessly in the political sphere, arguing for reproductive choice as a basic part of religious liberty and maintaining that the availability of safe legal abortion for anyone who needs it is the only compassionate course for women and families. RCRC has filed amicus briefs in major abortion cases. It fights personhood bills, which give equal legal rights to fetuses, and abortion bans. Its members include Catholics, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Unitarians, Methodists, Presbyterians, Jews, and Congregationalists. I am on the governing board of that organization, and still its efforts can seem to the public nearly invisible. For years, I was content to stay in my stuckness, to allow my mind and my faith to expand, but to let that evolution happen in private on my own time. 
I was contented in my Quaker meeting. Bigger corporate expressions of faith held no attraction for me, and no traditional congregation could do the work of helping me understand myself to myself. And so outwardly, I continued to say I was born again, and on that basis to refuse to perform abortions with my own two hands. Then, as circumstance forced me out of my complacency professionally, so did it force me to articulate a new understanding of God, which would prompt, embrace, and support my professional choice. So here we see, again, another example of my cell phone being turned into a rat trap, that this crisis that Dr. Parker was facing forced him to completely rethink God and rethink pretty much everything. Now, I'm all for rethinking things. I've spent a good part of my life rethinking uh, the Bible, Christian faith, these sorts of things. It's, it's fine to, to question. It's fine to rethink and, and say, wait a minute, now here, here's this existential problem that the Scriptures seem to be lacking on or I don't understand, so on and so forth. But what Dr. Parker has chosen to do here is not to rethink He's chosen to reinvent. So according to his life's experience and circumstances, he chose to reinvent who God is based on those circumstances. Again, my children see a gigantic rat in our house. They have my cell phone. Their solution? Rethink things. Dad gave us the cell phone for an emergency. We turn the cell phone into a rat trap. Hmm. Probably not the best move to make. Were there other options? Are there other options? Is there another way to go about this? Other than completely reinventing God according to your current crises and problems. Your current conflicts and situations, redefining the terms, deconstructing it, putting it back together, getting approval from the community, which we heard about here, and then promulgating this as provisional truth until that truth doesn't work anymore, and then deconstructing that and doing the whole process over again. Is there a better way toward this? And on what authority do you do all of this? The same questions just continually arise. So for Dr. Parker... It ultimately boils down to this excuse. For me, God had to be this way. I had to reinvent God in order to maintain my Christian identity. Well, that may be great for him, but that's not really great if those children he's aborting are actually children and he's actually murdering them. It's not real great for them. It's also not real great for the women involved because who is he to say that that person thinking they, quote, need an abortion, that that's actually the best thing for them? He doesn't know. In fact, it's quite ironic. He cites uh, an account of his sister who got pregnant very young and couldn't obtain an abortion, carried the child to term, had the baby, married the dad. And they had a happy family. Um, how come that's not an option? How come calling the, the boys in some cases, who have participated in these un unwanted pregnancies to account to be a father 
and a husband isn't an option. Or maybe, here's a thought, not having sex until you have a husband or a wife. These things aren't options. And so, you have to reinvent the entire thing in order to fit your idea of what you think the solution may be. This understanding I came to on my own with my books and my tapes and the voices of my loving mentors and personal saints in my head. Okay, that's his mistake. This choice he came to on his own with his books and his tapes and his personal mentors in his head. Nothing about going back and studying scripture again and trying to find a solution to this. He made the leap to saying, I've got to reinvent this whole thing so it works for me. And really, at the end of the day, that's the problem with, with this whole postmodern thing. They say, they say they get together in community about this. And, and I sometimes question that. Maybe they gather around some, some, some certain topics like abortion. But at the end of the day, what it's really about is, does this work for you as an individual? Does this give you the autonomy that is ultimately what all this is after? So, a little cautionary tale here, friends. When problems like this in life confront you and challenge your understanding of God... The move is not to make a choice on your own based on your own personal research into the matters and these sorts of things. The thing is to go back to the scriptures. Now, that's not to say that people can't help you to understand the scriptures. It's not just you and the Bible. It's you going back to the scriptures and looking back in history to how people understood it before you. Now, that's the big rub that Orthodox Christianity, and when I say Orthodox, that's with a little O, a proper understanding of historic Orthodox Christianity, that's one of the big rubs it has with, with the, this postmodern idea of deconstruction, is that human beings throughout history have become wiser and smarter and more learned. And I think quite the opposite is true. I think the further back you go... I. I think a more clear understanding of this world and the way things should be is actually present. We haven't really evolved. We've actually devolved. And we can't we can we, tr- we can trust ourselves with much less certainty than we can trust those who have come before us. That's the way I see it. It's not that the ancient Hebrews had an arcane understanding of how families should be structured. The ancient Hebrews had a more clear understanding of having the father be the head of the household in a patriarchal society and that society working and producing the greatest amount of good. They had a lot more, they had a much clearer picture of that. And these days, that's completely lost. That's one of the things, again, that Dr. Parker decries, is, the, is that the Bible is patriarchal. And I have no problem admitting that the Bible is patriarchal, as well it should be. 
But we somehow think that in this day and time, we're smarter and have a better understanding of how things should be than, than those in the past. And I just don't think that's the case. And the reason I don't think that's the case is because that's the way the Scriptures describe things. And I trust the Scriptures as being the locus of God's voice, not Dr. Parker's opinion, or anyone else's for that matter. So that's the idea. Go back to the Bible and get old. Find the earliest sources you can. Figure out what those guys believed. And you're probably going to be pretty spot on. Follow what Dr. Parker's saying. You have a recipe for disaster and destruction and murder and extreme darkness. This is not good. It's very dangerous. This is what we mean when we say that postmodern theology is dangerous. It leads to the murder of children who, when they're in the womb, should be the safest place on earth. And this is where it goes. And people, like Dr. Parker, have the audacity to call this compassion and Christianity and justice. And it is none of those things. And I reassert it here in the hope that other Christians and other people of faith might find in my evolution some comfort and perhaps some inspiration to see abortion as part God. Talking openly about abortion should be something that happens in church and not suppressed by religious authorities in the interest of preserving their own power. Women should find healing and understanding in church, not stigma and shame. The more I try to comprehend the notion of God, the more I think about the vastness of it. Thomas Merton said, God is. Everything we can understand is within the reality of God. Because we're so limited, we have a tendency to anthropomorphize. God is a person. God is a man. In the West, God is a white man who runs everything. That is the limited understanding that I sought to escape. Merton used to say, God is that which is wholly other. God is not you, and God is not me. And God is not somebody or something else. Unless you can get beyond the animate and the personal, beyond anything we can describe, then you can't get to the goodness and the bigness of that which is other. Everything, everything transpires within that context. And so conception, life, death, birth, abortion, they're all processes playing out in the reality of that other. I don't have this truncated view that life begins exactly here or ends exactly there. Static processes don't resonate with my understanding of God. To say that conception or birth or even death is miraculous does an injustice to God. Only a person lacking a scientific understanding of reproduction would say that God gives life or God takes life or you won't get pregnant unless God makes you pregnant. This idea of God as a meddler is what allows the antis to turn faithful people against themselves because in their eyes, all decisions, all the meaningful parts of life are God's will or not God's will. Is God really that temperamental and petty? Does God really need all that adoration? I'm thinking of the baseball player who comes up to bat and does some comical praying, kissing thing with his hands and on the visor of his cap before he hits a home run or strikes out swinging at the air. Does that have anything to do with God? Does God really care about the outcome of a baseball game? Is God really on one team's side? In this narrow view of God, there are good guys and bad guys, 
and only God gets to decide. Okay. Evidently, Dr. Willie Parker gets to decide who's good guys and bad guys as well. Because it's clear throughout this book that the antis are the bad guys. Why does he get to decide? It's that old saw. How does he know that? How does he know that those of us who oppose abortion are the bad guys? Based on his experience? Based on his understanding of biology? Why should we believe him? Why should we trust him? So it's an epistemological thing again. It's how do you know that? And again, I think that's the, whole, that's the silver bullet to this whole postmodern nonsense. Is how do you know that? I've yet to run into one of these cats. It's maybe anecdotal, but again, approaching not anecdotal. I've just done it so many times. Um, to challenge them with how do you know that? Why do you get to say what's right and good and beautiful and true? How do you know that? The other thing is that Dr. Parker, I mean, to me, throughout this book, it's obvious that he does not understand the scriptures. He may understand how to do postmodern deconstructionism and then call it Christianity, but he doesn't understand the scriptures. He doesn't understand what, uh, how the scriptures articulate God's will and not God's will. God's will is the Ten Commandments. That's what God's will is. And within those Ten Commandments, yes, there's a lot of freedom. God doesn't care what team wins the baseball game. That's not in the Holy Scriptures. And a lot of times those guys that go up there, um, if you've ever played sports or spoken in public or uh, performed in public, it's a nerve-wracking thing. And so you ask for the Lord's help. And the Lord does invite us to ask ask Him for whatever help that we need. So it's not out of bounds for a baseball player to go up and cross himself and say, Lord, help me. It's okay to do. You can ask God for for whatever. He already knows what you want. It's not like you're hiding it from him. That's one thing that Dr. Parker doesn't get, is that the Lord knows what's going on inside of us, the anxieties, and he wants us to talk to him about it. So that's fairly out of bounds in my perspective for him to decry that, say, that's bad, see, He's got a set of morals. Let's remember that. These progressives, these postmodern theologians, these liberals, they have a set of values. There's good guys and bad guys. Obviously, Dr. Parker just said it. One of the bad guys is these guys that go up and cross themselves and pray for God's help when they go to bat. He's a bad guy. Doesn't understand God. Doesn't understand God's will. The other thing is that these social justice warriors, the, re- the one major way they misunderstand the scriptures, and we're going to see this with Rob Bell next week too, is that they think the scriptures are this big social justice crusade. That it's the original rise against the man. And what they don't understand is when the scriptures call for the care of the widow and the orphan, the way they call for the care and the widow and, of the, and the orphan is according to the Ten Commandments. Not according to what, you want, what kind of construction you want to put on or what kind of opinion you want to offer for what it looks like to care for widows and orphans and care for the poor. We care for the poor according to the commands of Holy Scripture. 
And the basis of that is the Ten Commandments. Particularly the second table. When you start talking about justice issues, you know what I, you want you know what I ha- the the solution that the scriptures offer to this whole thing is the fourth commandment, along with the sixth commandment. And then capped off by the fifth commandment. The fourth commandment being honor your authorities. Honor your mother and father. That presumes that children start off with a mother and a father. If we could start right there and start to start to hold these boys, these quote men accountable who are having illicit sex with young women and getting them pregnant and start holding them accountable to these situations, then perhaps we could get someplace. That might be something the government could be interested in. To see to it that the the father is held accountable. I mean, they do this in divorce situations. If you divorce your wife and they and she has children, you are required by law to pay child support. And I'm I'm not sure about all the laws on this currently, but a lot of men get away with impregnating women and then disappearing. Somehow, maybe we could start there with the fourth commandment to start teaching men, especially men in impoverished um, and, and, and in ethnic minorities, what it means to be a father. And the sixth commandment of not committing adultery, not having sex outside of marriage. We can't teach this to people. We can't emphasize this. We've indoctrinated people with all kinds of other stuff. We can't teach this anymore. We can't teach men what it means to really be men. And then to ice the cake, and I even hate to phrase it that way, then our solution to that is to break the fifth commandment and just kill the children. That's our solution to it. That is not the biblical solution to this problem. This is not justice. This is injustice. And when you invent your own ways to execute justice, what you're going to end up doing is is, uh, committing injustice. And that's precisely what Dr. Parker is describing here. He has no idea. It's clear to me that he does not understand the scriptures. I'd be shocked if he actually read the Bible. And tried to make sense of it. Because if he did, then he wouldn't be saying saying this nonsense. Because his idea of social justice and, and what actions constitute justice are not biblical ideas. In fact, they are quite anti-biblical. Alright, we got to try to finish this up, so let's get going. If God is wholly other, then the miracle of life is not some ordinary meeting of sperm and ovum, a morally neutral, purely biological event, but the agency and the responsibility that come with being able to participate with God in a creative process. God is not human. God is not on the planet. God does not have babies or make babies. People do. As part of a greater intelligence, as a lover of beauty and creativity, God made the world. And sexual reproduction is part of a collaborative process between a male and a female and between God and humans. In that process, all distinctions disappear. 
God has no hands but your hands. God has no ability but your ability. That is what the Bible means when it says that you are God's child. If you look at it that way, if you set aside the idea that God is like Siri, telling you to go left or go right, then the whole business is sacred. Right, redefining terms here. That's what's going on. If you look at it that way, that's a key phrase you should home in on. Back to recognizing the whole postmodern thing and less of me pontificating. Listen in for key phrases like that. If you look at it this way, what if this is the situation? What if instead of the way we used to think about that, it's really this way? What would that look like? This is what postmoderns do. They ask these kind of rhetorical questions. Rob Bell, what if hell, as we've interpreted it in Holy Scripture, really doesn't mean hell, but it means something else? How would that change how we look on things? If we look at it this way, then these are the results. See, they're changing the definition of terms. There's just there's a there's a little clue. You have to practice with this stuff for a while before you kind of pick up on this, but that's one of the little clues. Look for that. Look for a redefinition of terms. It's a huge red flag. And look for these little catchphrases that signal a redefinition of terms, and that's one of them. If you look at it that way, according to my perspective, the way I understand God, these sorts of things, they're redefining terms. Very important that you pick up on that because... Basically, that's how Christianity is destroyed. You redefine the terms to the point where everything, the terms that we thought meant certain things, when they no longer mean those things, then we have no way to describe the true Christian faith anymore. Because all the terms have been taken from us and redefined. Pick up on that. Don't let it slide. All of it. A pregnancy that intimates a baby is not more sacred than an abortion. You don't become sacred like Mary just because you conceived. And the termination of a pregnancy is not the resolution of an error. It is merely one of the reproductive outcomes. So is miscarriage. So now is surrogacy and in vitro fertilization. All these are on a continuum, and they all hold moral weight. The God part is in your agency. The trust, the divine trust, is that you have an opportunity to participate in the population of the planet. And you have an opportunity not to participate. Is God vested one way or another in whether you as an individual become pregnant? No. Is a pregnancy sacred because there will be a baby, ultimately in a bassinet, beautiful, maybe the next Obama? No. The process is bigger than you are. The part of you that's like God is the part that makes a choice. That says, I choose to, or I choose not to. That's what's sacred. That's the part of you that's like God to me. So there it is. That's the part of you that's like God to me. Not according to any other authority. Certainly not according to the scriptures. We, we are not like God because we have autonomy. That's not, that's not what it means to be made in God's, God's image. If you think that's what the scriptures describe being made in God's image is like, you need to study your Bible more. All right. And maybe we could talk about that another time. But there it is. That's what being like God is to me. Why are you an authority? 
So basically, I can just dismiss all of his entire argument because I could say, ah, well, that's the way it is to you, but it's not that way to me. Right? Why does he get to say? Hopefully, you've got the idea. Got to close it off. Check out my Federalist article on this. Hopefully, there's some unanswered questions. It's a big topic. Uh, but but hopefully you've seen the bare bones of it. And, you, and you've seen me pointed out with Willie Parker here. We're going to do it with Rob Bell next week. And kind of keep hitting on this. There's a lot of postmodern, emergent church nonsense going on right now. We're going to start hitting on these guys uh, and, and pointing out what's going on here. Thanks to everyone who makes the podcast possible. All the links on my website at laymanstermsradio.org. You can check them all out there. Uh, all the music and... Uh, sponsors and and what have you are there Um, also Pirate Christian Conference I'm going to get a button up about that soon Um, so make sure you register for the Pirate Christian Conference hope to see you there got to close it off for this week we'll see you next week Man, give me the gospel.